0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Adoption,
2: foster care, and special needs are all important areas that affect many families, and as a result, many churches. Kelly Rosati moderates a panel discussion on these topics between Lynette Azell, Herbie Newell, Palmer Williams, and Zach Pruitt at our national conference. Let's listen to their discussion now. We're very glad you're here this morning. We're going to talk about some very serious and wonderful topics And they include foster care adoption and mental health and i want to introduce you to our panel to my immediate left is zach pruitt who is an attorney for the alliance defending freedom and he works on issues around adoption in state legislatures across the country and at the federal level so we're very glad to have him to his left is my dear friend i'm going to be a little biased because she's kind of my favorite palmer williams (laughs) who is also an attorney So I want you all at the end of this panel to have a positive view of attorneys, okay? (laughs) I'm one too, but Palmer has had incredible experience in international human rights issues, in trafficking. Uh, She and her husband run their own consulting company, and they do work for the ERLC, providing very valuable insight She also has a passion and personal experience around adoption and orphan care, and I know you're going to enjoy hearing from Palmer. To her left is my new friend, Lynette Easel, and Lynette is just an amazing voice for the cause of adoption within the SBC world. She is an adoptive mom herself and has a podcast where she really delves in and talks about a lot of these issues, and so I think you're going to enjoy hearing what she has to say as well. And then to her left is Herbie Newell, Uh, and I think we're getting into a pattern and being um, (laughs) on panels together at these wonderful conferences. Herbie has incredible knowledge and insight. He is the president of Lifeline and uh, can speak to all of these issues that we talked about. Um, and brings that very unique and important Christian perspective, of course, that we all share, but that not everyone uh, in child welfare circles is also uh, coming from that same perspective. So let's delve right in, and um, I think, actually, Herbie, I'd like to come to you first. Would you tell us about Lifeline's work in adoption, but then also... What you do in foster care and caring for families in crisis, kind of getting upstream, and then how you equip churches to meet those needs in your community.
3: Yeah, so at Lifeline, one of the things that we believe is that we want to equip the body of Christ being the big C, the church, but also the little C as individual believers of the church to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children And so we really believe that we want to equip and wrap around families. And it's not just a one-time equipping and then placing, uh, but it's a lifetime journey. And so even as we've been here, one of the things that just warmed my heart is a family came up and said that they had used the services of Lifeline and they were past all their post-adoption. Reports and an issue came up with their child, and they called thinking we wouldn't respond. And we're like, Oh, thank you for calling. We'd love to help you. And so, we really want to walk families through that process, but we also want to equip churches to be the wraparound support as well, uh, because we understand as a ministry that uh, our shelf life is not very long, but the church's shelf life is extremely long. As a matter of fact, uh, we have the promise that the church will always be there. And so, when we look at adoption, but then also your, your second part of your question, foster care. We really believe that it's our role to equip the church to wrap around children in foster care, and and I even know as we have these attorneys on the panel and Alliance of Defending Freedom, it's getting harder and harder for organizations to, to live faithful lives in these spaces. But the church has, for for you know, millennial, been the 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 place of theology, the place. That presses upon the gospel, and so when the church reaches out, uh, it's it's a beautiful thing, and that's really what these children need is the community of the church. And so, no,
2: you bring up such an important point, and I want to stick here for a minute. Um, and you said the word post adoption support or post placement support. I find that a lot of people, unless they're in our world, and, and you know, um, my husband and I adopted our four kids from foster care. We've now been in this uh, 20 years, mm-hmm. and so I feel like kind of an old lady in the movement here at this point. But a lot of people I talk to still don't really understand, why would you need help? Why do families need post-adoption services? Once that kid is placed there, isn't it just easy because now you love them and you teach them about Jesus, and it's a fairy tale from then, right?
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Can you help people who aren't as familiar to understand why that actually isn't the case and um, why that makes this wraparound from the church so important?
3: Well, first of all, we're having this conference about the cross-shaped parenting. So obviously, even when we talk about being a biological parent, it doesn't come with a manual, and it's not easy the moment the baby's placed in your arm. The doctor doesn't say, here's the baby, you're going to go have a great time, we'll see you in 18 years, this is going to be fantastic, right? (laughs) But we're always looking to go, well, what do I I need to do? Well, you add the complexity of trauma, you add the complexity of potential uh, medical needs, you add the... Uh, the, the cognitive delays that some of these children have, I think the biggest of all is, is the trauma that they've faced. You know, it was never the Lord's intention for families to be separated. That's right. It was never the Lord's intention for a child not to be with their biological parents. And so when you have that kind of brokenness, those children are bringing that brokenness into these families. And so if biological families need support on what do you do? I have a 13-year-old at home. He's fantastic. But, you know, we're learning a little bit more about teenagers, if, if we've got to learn just with our biological children, 100% we need support to learn. When we're not just bringing in teenagers into our home, but we're bringing in teenagers that have that have emotional trauma in their background and that have, for, for, for lack of a better purpose, has been separated from their biological families. Yep, that's
2: right. Lynette, I want to come to you as an adoptive mom. Um, you know, I think one of the things that often happens, again, that sort of lays out why it is that families need support is because of that early trauma, While most of the families in our churches are very busy running to soccer practice and music camp and all kinds of wonderful things, for many of us, we're dealing instead with things like doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists, and we're dealing with IEPs and 504s in public schools, which relate to special services and accommodations that many of our kids need. Can you talk about your that from the perspective of a mom and with the podcast that you've done really delving into so many of these issues what have been some of the things that have most caught your attention um, that you feel most passionate about that you would love for our audience to be able to hear
1: yeah what I've really noticed is that uh, we do have six children three, three of ours are adopted we now have two adopted granddaughters as well so uh, my kids it couldn't have been that bad you know they bought into it and they're <laughs> doing right. it as well Um, It's a blessing, but what I I have noticed the triggers of trauma come at different stages uh, with kids who come from hard places, and what I had to do, I'm a very simple person, and so what I had to do is I just had to back up, and I call it putting my face in the carpet. And I just wrote down, I share with adoptive families, uh, prayers for my chosen child. And I just focus on five things. You know, there's salvation, relationships, trauma, those sort of things that things you really, uh, four out of the six that I have in there, you don't really think about so much with your bio kids, healthy relationships, knowing when to trust people, that sort of thing. But um, we are seeing on the podcast that families are thriving when they are in community and when, as Herbie said, that they have the wraparound care, and uh, adoption is a decision for life. And so um, you're ushering these kids into adulthood and your family, and you know you, you just really always kind of have to be there for them. My husband travels a lot, and I, I, I say I've been in the home 28 years. You know, I would love to travel and go and do, but I just felt the call. I was just talking with Dr. Moore. If we pull back, I noticed in my home, if I pulled back and was gone three or four days, one of mine would be six weeks behind in school. And so I I just said, Lord, give me a contentment. And, And I have absolutely adored and loved getting to know these incredible people the Lord's put in my life that are my children. And I don't want to um, miss that time with them. So the trauma in their life, you know, we've we've handled through prayer and then um, just really reaching out. I don't want to be a mom that's too prideful that I don't get help. Yes. And so that's something that I have just, uh, Kevin and I have stood on that we need help. We got to get help and just be honest about it. I think in the church, it's time to kind of drop all that and say, hey, we're struggling. And we need some help. And the church is God says Herbie said God's plan A, to to love these half million orphans as far as our foster children in in North America. We have one county in Georgia that started with like thirty five foster kids, and in eighteen months we have four hundred. Mm-hmm. Small little county in Georgia, we have forty beds. So um, the the landscape of adoption and foster care has got to change within the church. Absolutely.
2: Let's uh, paint a little bit of a context for those of you who may not be that familiar with foster care in the United States. We have approximately a half a million children in the U.S. that are in foster care because of abuse or neglect or abandonment. Of course, the primary goal of really everyone involved in foster care, absent a very exigent circumstance, is for kids to be able to be reunited and for families to be able to stay together and to be healthy. But when that is not able to happen, when birth families are either unable or unwilling to do what they need to do to adjust, to have a safe family home, the child then becomes essentially, for all legal purposes, a child of the government entity so a child of the state or of the county. And we know God did not intend for children to be parented by the government. And so of that half a million children, 100,000 of them are waiting for adoptive parents. And while child welfare workers don't like the term very much, and I understand why they don't, from a Christian perspective, these kids are orphans. Mm -hmm. And Palmer, Orphans are very close to the heart of God, whether it is the 100,000 kids in foster care that do not have a permanent forever family, or whether it's the millions um, overseas. God cares about orphans. You've done work uh, in orphan care overseas. Could you talk a little bit about what that picture looks like internationally and how people here and in their churches might be able to get involved and support orphans?
0: absolutely. Um, so I um, have spent a lot of time overseas working um, in orphanages and, and children's villages caring for, for kiddos, especially those affected by the HIV crisis. Um, and you know what? Um, there's brokenness everywhere in this world, but it is so real and palatable in um, places where children um, don't have families. Children deserve families. They thrive in families. God has made us communal. He is a communal God and he has made us in, their, in his image. And so we are meant Um, to be in families. And so um, I would say as far as um, Christians leading in this area, we are present all over the world. That's obvious. We care deeply. Um, This is the heart of the Lord, um, are the, the fatherless. Um, but I think one thing that I, I have seen and that I think that we as a body really need to, to do well um, is to be ready to adapt to change as we learn more and more and as God reveals more and more about how attachment works and how brain chemistry works and how minds work. Um, I think that we have had a lot of great ministries. And if we change, that does not um, that's not an indictment on what we've done before. It's just a, a great mercy from the Lord that he's teaching us new things. And so um, I've seen that we, I work for, well, I am, I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Show Hope um, that Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth Chapman started for adoption care. And we have special needs care centers in China. And for years, we've operated um, and had Chinese and, um, and nannies from East Asia care for our kiddos. They've done an amazing job. Um, but in that time, in, in the States, we've started implementing a lot of what Herbie's talking about, this post-adoptive care. Um, specifically, Show Hope used a model called um, Trust-Based Inter- Relational Intervention. Intervention. I knew Kelly's yeah. the expert. TBRI. TBRI. <laughs> and so we've learned about the brain chemistry of kids who've come from hard places and have experienced early trauma and how we can begin to rebuild those, um, those brain synapses and um, and all of that. And so one thing Shohab has done is they said, okay, if this is working for our kids here in America, let's go um, and teach our nannies in China. And I think it would have been really easy to say, we've done this forever. It's worked well. Um, China, this is not a natural um, attachment. is isn't something that comes naturally to, to their culture. Um, but instead they said, no, we know, we've learned something new. Let's try something new. And it has been revolutionary for our kids overseas. And so I would just say, um, I hope that we can be a people that are constantly um, learning and, and letting God teach us new things about how to care for these children.
2: So in the spirit of learning, and then I am coming to you, Zach, soon, so forgive us <laughs> while we camp on trauma a little bit. Lynette, I think I want you or Herbie to jump right in. I kind of want to set up for you, for those of you who aren't in this world, you, you keep hearing us say, trauma, trauma, trauma. Mm. And what Palmer just said is that trauma— changes the brain of a small child who has been abused. And so their behaviors and what's happening with them is going to look different from a typically developing child. And I want to give you just a simple example to help understand this and have uh, one or both of you weigh in. Explain the difference between a typically developing child who just really loves dessert, and so they steal the candy. And no matter how many times you talk to them and talk to them about what the Bible says about stealing, they're still stealing the candy. And so there there would be one approach for that. But then for another child, they're going to do the exact same behavior and steal the candy. But this child never had enough food to eat and experienced a trauma. And so I would like one or both of you, if you would, to kind of jump in and explain why those are different situations and why, as Christian parents, with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, you need to treat them differently? Lynette, let's start with you from the mama's perspective and then jump well, over. Well, it's to funny her. you
1: started with the candy because we adopted a 1-year-old, 3-year-old, and then a 12-year-old. And we tell everyone we adopted Aladdin, and we really did.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Just think about that, if you've seen Aladdin. So we did adopt him, and uh, he's a survivor. He's a street survivor. So what I did, food was an issue, and I just put, I didn't do this with my three older kids. We didn't live this way, but I put food all over the home and, and just dropped that because those brains come and they stay in the upstairs brain, so they're fright, flight, or fight mode at all times. And it was months before our son could settle down and sleep. His body wasn't tense, that he could rest, that he knew he was safe. Because for 12 years, he was taking care of himself. And so the brain stays in that mode. It's survival. There's not enough food. I'll be hurt in the morning. Someone's going to come in my room in the middle of the night. And so it took a long, long time um, to get that to just kind of just kind of calm down. So I'm not going to die over the hill over a piece of candy, right? Yes, That's just not going to be an issue. But I am going to retrain the child. Here's how we do eat. You can eat anytime you want. Here are other alternatives and other choices. So Herbie, why
2: why would it not only be wise, uh, not wise, uh, not effective, but also not biblical to take the situation of Lynette's child, and say, stealing's a sin, you need to repent, and that's that.
3: Yeah, I think we have to look at the, again, the background of where these children are coming from, and so when we even talk about TBRI, you know, it's a good friend and a sister, Karen Purvis, Um, and she was actually a North American Ward missionary at one point before she went back to school, and I love what she said, is our brain development is so hardwired in that first year And I was actually this summer teaching this to foster parents in Columbia with my family. And we talked about this that if you think about the way God has it hardwired, I'm gonna try to stay G rated, but when a baby is born, the mom feeds the baby in God's economy in the natural way that God has it. And I love what Karen Purvis said. He has it rigged that the mama and the baby are spending time together because no newborn baby eats in five minutes, it takes a while, it's a process. And so you're building this attachment with this child, and this brain chemistry is saying, I can trust this person. When that's broken and severed, then there's a lack of trust. And so when I go, if I go out in the bookstore just because I want a couple more books, and I go lift them off LifeWay's table, I'm not going to do that. So I saw Marshalls, (laughs) don't follow me. But if I did that, right, I am actually saying I don't trust God. Yes. So my behavior is an offense to God because I'm saying you can't trust for my need or for what I have. This child doesn't even have the basis of I can trust another human That's being. Right. And so we can't even teach them to begin to trust God, which is our ultimate reality and what we're called to do as believers until they can trust another person. That's right. And so we have to look at the behavior as they don't even truly comprehend that they're sinning against a holy God, because right now they don't trust anyone's going to meet their needs. And so it's a, it's a basic survival for needs. And, and, and that even brings me to the point of thinking, and, and I know that the Ezels have adopted from Africa, you know, a lot of times people look and say, why would anyone abandon their child? You know, a lot of these moms are to a point where they are so desperate to provide for their own needs, they feel like they have no other choice. And so my heart even is, As the church, we think holistically to say, how can we start to meet needs of birth families as well, Mm -hmm. to keep kids out of foster care, to keep kids out of being to a place that they have to be adopted. And we're being irresponsible as Christians if we only think about adoption, but we don't think about how to provide for those needs for those families and for those children initially. That's
2: That's right. It all comes down to loving one another and showing the love of Christ to birth parents, to social workers, to everyone involved, and not having our involvement revolve around adoption only. And so Mm -hmm. I appreciate that so much about what you do, Herbie. Um, Zach, I want to come to you now because uh, there is a climate where in some states, Christian providers of these very services that we're talking about, whether it's foster care, uh, birth family uh, reunification and support, whether it's adoption. Um, Some Christian agencies have run into conflict, not only in contracts with government entities not being able to operate in a way that would conform to their religious convictions, but even being able to get licensed in some of the states because of their unwillingness to do things that violate their conscience. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the give us the landscape of what's going on so people know how they can pray for these agencies who have been called by God into this space?
4: Yeah, it's a big problem right now uh, that we're seeing all across the country, uh, even at the federal level and definitely at the states. Uh, What's happening, uh, just to kind of sum up, and I'll give you kind of a quick update on a couple of uh, pending cases right now, uh, is that many states and municipalities have added uh, sexual orientation to their list of protected classes. So what's happened is when an adoption agency applies for a contract with the state, the state is then requiring them to conform to the state or locality's uh, anti-discrimination provisions.
2: Okay, so that sounds really lawyerly. So (laughs) the down and kind of simple on that is that some states are saying to agencies, we won't even let you function if you don't place with same-sex couples. Is that, what, is that what you're...
4: That's right. And there's it's also happening with ones, with agencies that are already in existence. The state is threatening to pull their contracts uh, or terminate them because they refuse to place with same-sex couples. So this is, we're seeing there's a lawsuit in uh, Michigan and also in Pennsylvania right now dealing with this exact same thing. Uh, we're working on, on those lawsuits as well as legislation to try to proactively protect adoption agencies in state legislatures as well as in the federal.
2: And this is so important because Christians like Herbie and uh, Lifeline and others have been in this space doing such good work for Mm -hmm. so long. And as we've begun to discuss, not only because of trauma, but lots of kids have very unique special needs, kids that are in the systems and kids that need families. Palmer, you have a fair amount of experience Mm -hmm. with family members with special needs, and I wonder if you could share how the dignity of human life shapes the way you think about um, people with special needs made in the image of God and how we all can do a better job understanding those and supporting not only individuals with special needs, but the families that they um, are part of.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, So my husband um, has a sister named Mary Rose, and Mary has um, some pretty severe developmental delays um, and um, Mary will come to be part of our um, nuclear family as um, whenever his parents are unable to care for her. Um, and we are excited about that, but I'm also learning and thinking through, okay, how do we um, best equip our family to be ready for that change? Palmer, um, um, how old is Mary? So Mary is 28. 28. And yeah. for people who just aren't as familiar, you talk about developmental delays. Sure. Can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So, Mary doesn't have a specific diagnosis. She was born in the 80s, um, and they never really uh, kind of pursued exactly what her um, diagnosis was. But she's a lot of um, cognitive delays, but then also a lot of emotional disorder. So, that's kind of the, the hardest part with Mary is that she. Um, well, one of the, the greatest gifts that God has given her is that she's incredibly intuitive. She knows when there's the slightest tension in the room, and she's the sweetest heart, and it affects her. But she's unable to um, de-escalate her own emotions, and so there's a lot of outbursts and that kind of thing. Um, it was actually when Joe and I first got married, our first fight, he had a come apart about it. And I realized because his family, there was no conflict, because Mary couldn't handle conflict, and so they they dealt with it very quickly, and my family is just more of a, uh, we're going to get in there and, and have a good row, <laughs> and so uh, we had to learn about that in our own marriage, but I will say, I think one of the beautiful things about Mary, um, and I experienced this in my own life, I was in a car accident when I was eight years old, and so I have a spinal cord injury, so my brokenness is very physically visible to the world. And Mary's is similar. When you meet Mary, you know that there's something different about her. Um, and so we can't hide that we need help. We can't hide our dependence on others. And I think that is a huge blessing from the Lord. I'm a fiercely independent girl, and, um, but I think the Lord knew I needed to trust others. And so Mary and I get <laughs> Um, in, in different ways, but we get to um, ask for help and depend on others and I think that 's something beautiful that i 'm excited that my I have um, two little boys and they get to see what it looks like to to not um, buy into the world that we have to be independent but that we get to to rely on each other and it 's not easy or so st- i 'm still figuring out exactly what that looks like um, and how to love Mary best, especially when I have toddlers who um, love conflict. <laughs> so um, we, we navigate that all the time, but um, I feel very blessed. I will say one of the biggest challenges that I've seen our family have to go through um, is just church life. Um, Mary, Mary's parents, my in-laws, can't sit in church unless they have a, a class that is equipped or people within the Sunday school class that are equipped to help care for Mary and her needs, and um, so their their church um, selection is very limited in um, to to churches who have thought well about how to um, love families with um, special needs, and so I think that's something that we really have to do better about. It should be the very first place that um, families with special needs can go, not not one of the harder. Um, things that they have to deal with.
2: And that is a huge issue. Churches should be the place that are the most inclusive for people with special needs. And whether they're the physical needs that you describe or invisible (laughs) needs related to, for example, mental illness and things that people are not able to see. And so there's not nearly as much understanding around them. Um, I want to turn a page just real quick here as we get ready to close. Lynette, would you talk about the NAMB's efforts around foster care and adoption. I've been very excited to hear about this initiative and, and the goals and the passions, um, I think, that are that have driven this. Can you describe that for everyone?
1: Yeah, at the North American Mission Board, we're just really wanting to engage the local church, start at the local church, as Herbie was saying, and uh, one small way that we've done it, we focus on Stand Sunday in November, and we offer resources and we, what I did, I just encourage you, is I went and met a social worker. I go to your local DFACS office. They have high needs and just meet them. And my world was changed on a dime when one leaned across from me. I was talking to her and we were the same age. How can I help you? She'd been doing this 25 years, which is unheard of. They don't usually make it that long. And she just said, Lynette, let me just tell you something. These kids in foster care, the only time they hear the name Jesus is when someone's swearing. They don't know who your God is. That's a half a million kids in North America. So what I just started doing with a friend Uh, Her husband's with Sin Relief, a part of the North Bear Commission Board, and that's a branch that works with Foster and Adoption. We just started a ministry called Restoring Dignity. It's on Instagram. I'd love to help you. And we get a brand-new duffel bag with a week's worth of new clothing, a copy of God's Word, a letter of hope, things for comfort, for trauma, and we get that into those child's hands in North Georgia, and we're just spreading out to other areas in when they're placed into care, and so that's one simple way. Um, and then partnering with Lifeline in place and you know things like that. And we also offer uh, financial help to people in ministry who want to adopt. Just so
2: important, and I hope what everyone can take away from that message is not everyone is called to be an adoptive that's parent. That's right. Not everyone is necessarily called uh, into foster care, but we are all called as followers of Christ to care Mm -hmm. that this is happening in our own communities and to pray Mm -hmm. and ask God to show us how we might be involved, whether it's supporting a family, as they've described to us today, that's that's in this and has a child from foster care or has adopted, um, or whether it's getting involved in the NAMB's program and um, just diving in because the need is great Herbie, I want to come back to you and ask you to kind of close our time out today talking about prayer needs, Mm -hmm. because I think we all know, being in the midst of this, that there's such a spiritual battle is involved as well, and that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy these children that we've talked about today. But Jesus has come that they would have life and have it to the full. So how can we do a better job even in praying around this topic?
3: Yeah, I think prayer is vital, and I, I love what Palmer said about how there are needs that are more visible. So today, we know that the folks in the Florida Panhandle need prayer because it's visible, but what we don't r- realize is that families that are in adoption and foster care are bringing trauma into their home, and it's, it's in some regards, like a mini hurricane in their home every day, mm-hmm. and they're, they're experiencing loss in some regards every day. They or their children are experiencing loss So we need to pray and we need to wrestle in prayer for these families. And we need to be committed. And, you know, I I don't mean this politically, but when you look at Acts, what does the church become? It becomes socialism, where, in a sense, Acts 2, Acts 4, the gospel is preached and all people have all things together. And the church is coming in and sharing their resources and wrestling in prayer with each other and coming alongside and supporting. And one of the greatest ways we can support anyone is not with our pocketbook, was by our God and going to Him and pleading on their behalf. And so uh, there, we need to plead on behalf of these children that don't have homes yet. And we need to plead on behalf of these families who've taken the step to say, Absolutely. I'm going to bring these children to my home. And it it seems trite, but it's so, so Not, true. Yeah. And if we are God's people and truly saying we recognize the power is in him, then we go to where the power source is. That's right. Um, you know, I don't I don't plug in a lamp into thin air and think it's gonna come on, I plug in the power source. And so as believers, we have the greatest power source and we need to wrestle in prayer for our fellow brothers and sisters who are fostering and adopting and our and, and these children who do not yet have a home.
2: Give our panel a hand and we thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit ERLC.com for more resources on this and many other topics. And join us next week as we hear about God's design for manhood.